This program is produced using the resources of Public Media Network in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Learn more at publicmedianet.org. Welcome to Connecting Communities, a podcast that highlights the work and voices of individuals in Kalamazoo who are taking action in their communities on environmental issues. I'm your co-host, Dee Chauvin. I have with me today uh, Joe Byers yep. co-hosting with me. <laughs> Good to have you. Thank you. And our guest today, Mitch Leto. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Mitch. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You are the stewardship director at the Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy. Yep. One of the pieces that we wanted to talk about today was different, different viewpoints on stewardship, uh, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. We've uh, had a few people come in and share their perspectives on some different programs that they're doing. Um, but it seems like uh, Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy, that sounds really official. It seems like you guys would really know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I'm excited to hear it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Before we get into that, tell us a little bit about the Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy and like what that is. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, lots of great thinking points and questions. So the Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy is a 501c3 nonprofit. So I always have to point that out. We're not government funded, we're not the, the DNR. Um, yeah. Lots of people also think we're like the Kalamazoo Nature Center or like a public park system. We're kind of a, just an independent nonprofit. So uh, we work in uh, nine counties and Kalamazoo is, is sits right in the heart of that. So if you kind of grab one county on every side or corner of Kalamazoo and swing around, that kind of encompasses that Southwest Michigan um, service area as we call it if you go Further north or east, there are other land trusts that work statewide or in different parts of the state, but Southwest Michigan is kind of our world. So, and so we do conservation work in those nine counties. So all in all, that's those nine counties total about um, a little over three million acres or so. So it's a good chunk of the state. It's really diverse. I love working there, or here rather, because I'm in Southwest Michigan. Um, and we do various types of conservation work. We work with private landowners um, to protect family farms, properties, things like that. And those are through a tool called conservation easements. And those typically are not as visible to the public. There are some places like the Kalamazoo Nature Center or Pierce Cedar Creek Institute or Lillian Anderson Arboretum that we have conservation easements with that are open to the public. But generally, it's kind of an unseen part of conservation. And then we have places that the Land Conservancy and Collective owns. Uh, so we have a board, we have staff, we have an absolute army of volunteers. Um, I know Joe has, has uh, been one from time to time and helped us out. And uh, with that collective group, we own and manage those places or steward them um, using the vernacular of the episode. So uh, yeah, so Ever since the organization was founded in uh, 1991, stewardship was a really important part of our sort of brand of conservation and what, what we do in terms of being really active in taking care of those places. So I don't know if I missed anything that you were hoping to hear, but that's sort of in a nutshell kind of what we do. And then within those nature preserves, I should say, those places are free and open to the public. Uh, dawn to dusk, 365 days a year. So there's school groups that use them. There's lots of people that go 
you know, walk dogs, there's no membership, there's no entry fee um, required or anything like that. And so there's a lot involved with taking care of those places from ecological side of things to trails and infrastructure and parking lots and neighbors and all sorts of different things. So I can't believe it's three million acres. I mean, that is really impressive. And that's I mean, that's what Southwest Michigan is. Our we've protected uh, around eighteen thousand um, between the easements and the nature preserves. Oh, okay. But it's. Uh, it's fun to frame Southwest Michigan at 3 million acres. It's about the size of Connecticut okay. on one side of All things. Right. I see what you're saying. And the other side of things, it's uh, like Yellowstone National Park maybe. And so you could think of it as one big national park or you could yeah. think of it as big enough to be kind of its own own state. So, yeah. but. You've got uh, the private property easements and you've got the places that are more like parks, traditional parks. Um, and so with the parks, obviously you said we have trails, we have parking lots, all that kind of thing. Um, with the easements, is that kind of like a promise not to develop or what is that agreement? Yeah, so it's, it's usually initiated by the, the landowner. So it's actually, believe it or not, it's been one of the longstanding bipartisan conservation efforts that are, you know, supported on either side of the aisle. Um, there are certain property tax benefits that, um, that come with it. And then we hold what's called the conservation easement. And then if that property should get sold or passed down to children or family or something like that, then um, the conservation easement is attached to the deed and title of that land. And we oversee that. So once a year, we, we or a volunteer walk the boundaries to make sure that everything is consistent with kind of the plan. So development is usually focused in one specific area of the property to prevent you know, habitat fragmentation and those sorts of things, um, usually where the house is, the residence of the property. And it can still be used as a working farm. It can be hunted following the, the DNR seasons and everything like that. We can do sustainable forestry. So it's, a, it's still a functional you know, piece of land for that, that family or that individual. Um, and then just the conservation easement just goes through time, and then we, we hold that. So, yeah, it's, it's not something that, that gets talked a lot about, but um, it's a really, especially being that uh, it can remain private land. There are lots of states where there's not a lot of public land, so if you're not doing private land conservation, you're not really doing conservation in some of those places. We have a really great, um, really great portfolio of public land in Michigan, so... Not necessarily the case here, but it, it helps to have both tools and sort of both angles. So now that we've got that kind of big picture, what is stewardship? What does stewardship mean to you? It's a great question. I've been kind of, as we talked about having this episode, I kind of thought about different uh, definitions of it, but uh, I think it's just being a caretaker of the land and water, you know, that we're in charge of. And so... It may seem really broad and kind of nonspecific, but that's because it can encompass so many different, so many different um, facets of what being a caretaker of land requires. And I think that, I think that even that idea that land would benefit or needs to be taken care of is is counterintuitive to a lot of people because we've had a lot of this you know, preservationists, you know, people like John Muir and the like National Park Movement, where we think, you know, set it aside, like like the 
to say the crockpot model, like set it and forget it. And uh, that definitely has value and that, that is sometimes appropriate in some places, but there's just a lot of things that have happened to our natural areas over the course of the last you know, several hundred years that can really be improved with some sort of dedicated care to those places. That includes you know, facilitating people using, using those areas um, as well as looking after the ecology and the mm -hmm. species and the habitat and everything. So, um, so yeah, it's really just taking care of a place. So, you know, outside of uh, outside of the sort of environmental movement, you know, have you heard stewardship used in other contexts? Like, what do you think of when you think of stewardship? I guess outside of environmental. Um. So, like, the first thing that comes to my head is like a church. Which, yeah. Exactly, yeah, so somebody's like walking around, you know, being the caretaker of the place. I hear, yeah, museums, churches, like some kind of property or grounds or whatever, um, you know, taking care of a place. And so it's the same, same kind of idea, you know, if you, if you buy a new house, even if it's brand new, everything's working great, you're still going to keep your eye on it, right? If a storm happens or whatever, you're checking for leaks and you're doing your routine maintenance, um, you know, same goes for a natural area. Even if it's very healthy and functioning on its own, we want to check in on it, you know, do some surveys, maybe see how some of the species are doing, um, you know, keep an eye on the boundaries, make sure that nothing is happening to degrade the property. So even if it's perfectly, you know, pristine, whatever, if that's a real, if that's a real thing at this day and age, <laughs> whatever that would mean, you know, it still makes a lot of sense to keep an eye on it and to, to sort of, you know, take care of it. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum is a place that needs a lot of habitat restoration and a lot of sort of rehabilitation to be more welcoming to the community. There's a lot of things that can go into it. So yeah, so anyway, just kind of stepping back, it's, it's taking care of a place. Um, I've also heard the opposite of neglect. It's kind <laughs> oh, of a fun yeah. way to, like that one. To, to think of it. So yeah, I like that one too. So. Yeah, and we... So our field staff are split up into what we call land protection and stewardship staff. And so the land protection folks work with a lot of the legal aspects of land ownership, land purchasing, easements, and that sort of thing. And that's really important. And that provides a formal designation. You know, some, somewhere gets declared a national park or, or a county park, whatever. It's great, and it's a moment for celebration and, and huge achievement. But if you're committed to a place for a lifetime, I mean, that is just the tip of the iceberg. And then you're, you're essentially, you and the community are on the hook for taking care of this place and looking after it, you know, ideally for a long time. So our land protection folks work on the front side of things with surveys and developing relationships with landowners and that sort of thing. And then, um, and then if we stop there, that would sort of be the crockpot model um, and the, part that follows that, the, the more active uh, management and that sort of thing um, is what happens next. And so that happens with our private land conservation and in our nature preserve network as well. So um, so yeah, the, the, the formal designation of a protected area is a really important part. You kind of need that too, because if it changes ownership, someone else has a different value set or different ideas about you know what should be done with the land, it could change in an instant, right? Um, so that is super important, but in, I guess in this day and age, I think of those two pieces being part of conservation, which 
just the protection and the and the next step, basically, which is sort of indefinite, you know, depending on what your <laughs> what your view of the universe is. But yeah, yeah. So within the easement, often there are different types of land uses designated. So if there is an easement um, put on a property and there's active farmland, that's usually designated as active farmland. So it can it can continue to be used for that purpose. Someone could plant it all into trees or plant it into a prairie or something like that, but that designation leaves that flexibility for that individual to make that decision. And then there's different designations that would include natural area, which are more of kind of what we do at our nature preserves, where the more habitat focus. There are working forest lands and things like that. So with the certified forest plan, um, trees can be harvested sustainably. So there's different sort of uses that can be designated for different areas. So it's a it's a flexible tool, which is part of the, yeah, one of the cool things about it. So that's kind of like an advantage of having a, 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 an easement. You, you still get to retain the property, it's still yours, but you wanna conserve these areas for generations, you know? Yep, yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, that's a big, and that's why it's more popular. That's, we protected more acres with that method. Um, because in terms of the day-to-day -day care and management, that's up to the, the landowner, and we basically check in and make sure everything is sort of up to snuff. But yeah, it's, it's been very popular, and I think that's why, um, why it's been supported in that way. There are um, tax benefits, but there's also a compromise to the, to the landowner. They can no longer sell it and put up you know, 200 houses uh, or, or something like that. Because, uh, because it's been protected. So the difference in the value of being able to develop all of a property or just build on a small part of it, the way that our society looks at it is that is a decrease in value, monetary value. Obviously, we're a little bit of a different breed here. We probably think a little bit differently that value is something else. But that number uh, has a value as well, so they can no longer sell it for as high of a price as they would have been able to normally. Or if they're passing it down, like as an asset, you know, and then a family or something like that, the value is is less. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you're near one of these places, a park, a protected area, anything like that, that your property values also go up. So there's a lot of economics around conservation mm -hmm. as well. But when you're looking at the three million acres as uh, you know, smattering all over sou southern Michigan, are you guys looking at like animal movement? And um, you mentioned counting species. Um, yeah. And so, do you track any of that? We do. For, as far as animal movement goes, we use a lot of sort of digital tools to do that, obviously because it's really hard to document and scale. So we, if we protect an area, we like to try to inventory the, the property. So um, plants obviously stay rooted, so which is the nice thing about them. Um, and so you can go and document and inventory plants and figure out what the diversity of plants are, what the different habitat types are within the property. We do bird surveys. Um, you know, different wildlife that we might encounter along the way. You know, obviously things like snakes and turtles are harder to find, they're more secretive. So we have a general sense of what's going on with, within the preserves. 
um, we could always use more funding, more opportunity to do more surveys. Because what we found is that whenever we go looking, we find really interesting things. It's just a matter of taking the time and having the resources to, to go look. And things like uh, fish, obviously, are not as easy to see. Uh, migratory movements of, of birds are not as easy to see. We're um, working on that a little bit. Uh, but there's things like eBird and these citizen science tools, um, iNaturalist, where you can see what people have been documenting in the area. You can get a sense of what species are using the area. Um, we also use you know, uh, records of things like that that have been documented and doing some GIS modeling to look at sort of intact uh, lands and try to sort of play the shoots and ladders game where you're connecting, you know, you're, you're making these conservation puzzle pieces on the landscape. So I said conservation kind of had two parts of land protection and stewardship. If it had one more, it would probably be the planning part mm -hmm. of it because, you know, most of that is private land. So understanding where species move and where really high quality intact habitats are is a bit of a guess. So you can sort of drive along the public roads and look and see the habitat um, that's there, but there's a lot of uh, modeling and GIS that is involved with sort of that large scale planning, um, map making and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of that that goes, that goes on too. And we try, to, we try to build on past successes too. So that's a big, that's a big part of it. So even if we can't see that animals are using it as a migratory corridor, we have, you know, you can do obviously trail cams and things like that to sort of get into that. But even if we can't see it happening, we sort of know how the landscape functions from people having done studies and things like that. And so the more we can connect up these areas, whether it's water or land, the better for the sort of function of the whole ecosystem and landscape together. Are you finding right now in Southwest Michigan that there is clear, safe areas of travel for animals? You know, you talked about migratory animals. Are there habitats that can support the, um, are there habitats that are the size that can support the animals in Southwest Michigan? It's a good, it's a really good question. I think that, I think that the wildlife populations and biodiversity is really responsive to the amount of re like resource they have available. I mean, every year birds are having more young than can survive, right? But it's like an insurance policy. So then they're adjusting to the, to the resources available on the landscape. So that's kind of the nice thing. If we put more resources on the landscape in the form of native trees in our neighborhoods or you know, we restore habitat, or we're adding things like that, they can adjust to that pretty quickly, um, depending on the species. And then, you know, on the other side of thing, we've also, on the other side of that, if the area of, of those protected lands declines, then the species will kind of adjust as things become available and unavailable. So it's, it's fluid, for sure. And we are finding that there are still some really big wild blocks of habitat. Uh, in Southwest Michigan, I like to, if you're on Google Maps and you kind of zoom out and you can click off all the roads and boundaries and stuff, it's kind of a fun way to look at the landscape. You can sort of see the big blocks of green and waterways connecting it. And so you can get that sort of perspective of where an animal might move from point A to point B um, 
But yeah, I mean, they're definitely well well used areas. We see a lot of migratory bird use. Um, we're finding, uh, yeah, all sorts of interesting rare species um, all the time, the more we look, basically. So they're well loved and well used. And you know, so yeah, I guess that's a hard question to answer, but um, yeah, hopefully we can grow that, grow that number and that acreage too. Yeah, so I mean, like the leading researchers, uh, you know, the books and stuff that I've read say that our parks and preserves are not enough. And that's why we've had such a dramatic decrease in insect populations and bird populations and wild animals and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's super important to plant trees and stuff in your neighborhood, neighbor, you know, native trees, like Mitch said, to encourage those populations everywhere. Yeah, and I think that um, you know the the trend is uh, the trend is generally down. Like for birds, for example, something I'm a little more familiar with. They did a study uh, looking at 50 years of bird data, uh, and they found that just the biomass of birds has declined by like three billion individual birds over 50 years. So that's a lot, right? But you can imagine just the growth of of areas, the change in farming practices, things that have decreased habitat. But some groups have gone up. So things like raptors um, that you know suffered some of the effects of DDT early on. It took a really, really long time. They're rebounding. Uh, game birds, waterfowl, things that, that we've put a value on and that there are policies and grants and that type of support to create that habitat to support those species. They have gone up over that fifty-year period, so there are these little, there are these little um, glimmers of hope where it's like you know if we do, we, we sort of have the understanding of how to do these things. It's just having the, the will and the resources, and all of that. So so yeah, it's a good. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I also don't want to like send people into a bad place because there's all sorts of reasons for optimism too. Sure, yeah, and on this podcast, we um, really always try to anchor our episodes in actions that folks can take, you know, um, you know, and we recognize every single episode has what are so, some systemic problems and mm -hmm. solutions, and what are some individual solutions um, mm -hmm. or impacts that we can have. Um, yeah. So, but I do think, you know, we can't ignore the problem either, so. Right, I, I yeah, it's that, that it's that like tender balance between, you know, <laughs> being nice to yourself and not just focusing on, on all the negative. And yeah. I think that's why stewardship is, it's kind of addicting. Cause you know, whether it's in the form of planting trees in your neighborhood or you're removing invasive species or you're, you know, cleaning up trash in an area, when you're done, you can see that you made an impact. And sometimes it feels like, you're, you know, charging against this wall that's immovable and there's just too much to, for you to do anything about. And, you know, we all have a role in that, you know, larger, um, larger picture, but that stewardship is where you find one corner that's important to you or your community and you dig in and you make a difference and you can see that, that change. And so, you know, if everybody dug into their own corner, like how massive would that <laughs> change be? So, um, I think that's why, why I tend to have tend to be a little more optimistic because, kind of in this space where you can see a lot of that positive change from a day, day, on a day to day basis. 
Yeah. And going back also to the amount of space that is safe space for animals and birds, um, can we take our postage size cities, lots, and yards and create a safe space that has a positive impact for uh, wildlife? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you, you're not going to see a bison in your backyard, right? <laughs> like, you're probably not going to see a box turtle, maybe depending on where you live. But it, it's all a, a matter of scale, right? Like, the world to a, a sweat bee uh, could be the, the size of a, a city block or a small park or something like that. You know, its entire life cycle might take place within that area. And so as you scale up, obviously you need more resources and more size. But even if it's not for something to complete like its life cycle, like think of birds nesting and what kind of habitat they're using. Um, they have to move back and forth from place to place, right? So a lot of these birds come through in the spring and they're following all sorts of different flight trajectories. They might be going to New Brunswick or Manitoba or Idaho or something, I don't know. And so they're kind of you know diffusing through the landscape and they might be migrating along the lakeshore, but you know, Kleinstuck uh, and Bow in the Clouds and Asylum Lake are these natural areas within Kalamazoo, kind of surrounded by an urbanized environment. And so those can be really important little refuges. They're great spots to see wildlife and birds too because they kind of concentrate there because the surrounding landscape might not be as hospitable. But uh, so yeah, I think on that scale, I think it's important for people to think about scale because a small scale is something that's under your control, right? So if you're getting frustrated with things that feel like they're out of your control, that's something that you can do. Um, and you know, people spend a lot, a lot, a lot of their leisure time mowing lawns and paying for landscapers and things like that. And so you and know, wasting water and wasting water. <laughs> There's all sorts of upkeep that goes with that. And if you enjoy doing that, that's one thing. But I think a lot of people just do it because they feel like they have to. So even if it's just a small patch that's you're having a hard time growing grass or whatever, you know, just start somewhere. And you know, I, my bet is that you're going to enjoy it and you're going to see something positive that makes you happy and makes you smile. And you're going to see something, something visiting the flowers, you know. And so, um, so yeah, even the, the size of a, a curb lawn, which is the first thing that I did when I moved into my house, I don't have a lot of space. Personally, I get to play in these places, you know, in Southwest Michigan uh, at work. But, you know, my individual space is a pretty small city lot. And so just about every corner that we can plant something, <laughs> we have at least tried. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. I think it's all, I think it's all uh, a matter of scale, you know, too. So. And if you can't affect something on a bigger scale, you can you can join a group that works on that scale, right? Like you can work on a city park level, or like we work on this kind of regional, you know, nature preserve patch level. Um, and so, yeah, conservation takes all sorts of different shapes and sizes. So, yeah, you said about your uh, army of volunteers. I mean, it really truly is an army too. Like a couple of years ago, we had. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, day of service at Bow in the Clouds in Kalamazoo, and there was probably 
65, 70 people there, maybe even more. I don't know. There was a lot of people, and it was like an icy January day. I mean, I remember like we were sliding down the hills in the forest, <laughs> and um, it, it, it's and they're dedicated. They have like weekend people and weekday people, and yeah, so get in where you fit in, you know? I like that. It's got a good ring to it. <laughs> I might have to use that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's sort of, expanding what you are stewarding, right? Like, <clears throat> if you just think of it as, well, this is my house and my property, and this is what I own, so this is the only thing I have control of. Well, no, you can go volunteer with these groups or a park or something like that and sort of expand your idea of ownership or collective ownership or whatever that might be, and then you really see, you really see a change in people. So I work with a lot of uh, volunteers who are retired, and a lot of them, it's like a second career for them. I mean, they're so dedicated, and they uh, are you know, running a lot of these programs and coordinating the week-to-week -week, uh, work that we're doing, and we work with them to try to you know, prioritize certain habitat projects or whatever, but they are as dedicated to these places as I am or as anybody is. And so I feel like that stewardship aspect kind of expands your worldview of uh, you know, sort of what what you're taking ownership or responsibility for. So that's really cool. If your yard is only this big or you live in a third story apartment, you know, but you expand your your sort of perspective on uh, on uh, you know, responsibilities or like community ownership and care, then yeah, it's kind of a, a game changer a little bit. Cool. Get in where you get in, is that what you said? Get in where you fit in. Get in where you fit in, okay. Got to repeat it. And another thing, too, I, I wanted to mention is that there's, like, no experience necessary. Like, anybody can show up to these days. Uh, you know, we did a garden project, and some of the guys that helped, like, you could tell it was the first time they ever used a shovel because um, they weren't really sure how to use it. So, <laughs> But, I mean, there's so many knowledgeable people that will help you and, um, you know, want want your help and you know I mean the volunteers I, I just saw like a post on uh, your uh, Southwest Michigan Land Conservancy's Facebook page like they they finished removing like all the um, invasive species at this one place and it was like it took them like a year to do it and it was such a huge accomplishment oh, yeah. and <clears throat> uh, yeah so it's yeah. cool. And they're, yeah, they're really taking ownership over those projects. Do we go out, we kind of look at the beginning of the project, and it looks, I think to, to a person who hadn't been involved with that, it would seem super daunting and like, what? No way. Like, you need to have a large piece of equipment come in here and take care of all this. There's no way we're going to do all this by hand. Uh, but, you know, they spent probably two months on it, and we kind of picked out, you know, we drew the boundaries, like, let's make this our goal, you know, in this certain amount of acreage. Um, and then those volunteers want to go back there and see what the changes look like too and see how the habitat's mm -hmm. responding. And so they're the ones asking me, can we, can we do more out there? You know, can we, our volunteers used to, to just work uh, basically from like April to October. In the cold months, we'd kind of take a few months off, take a breath, regroup. And at some point they were, you know, asked, can we just keep working throughout the winter, you know? <laughs> Michigan winters, obviously, you never know what you're going to get. And so, yeah, we have multiple multiple groups twice a week, you know, basically going year-round. And then we have these weekend work days, too. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it is an army of volunteers, for sure. 
That's incredible. Yeah, it sounds like you could learn a lot. Like if you were interested in understanding more about uh, natural environments, uh, sustainable environments, stewardship in your own space, um, yep. and you were feeling overwhelmed by it, then volunteering with you guys it sounds like it would be a great opportunity to learn how to apply those. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's a that's a huge benefit <clears throat> of it, and. The volunteers, like Joe said, no experience is necessary. They come from all walks of life. There's some that are, you know, were are retired educators or worked in animal health or HR or, you know, all over the place. And, you know, maybe the outdoors was something they were kind of interested or wanted to learn but didn't really have the time or couldn't make the time in a, during a busy career, family life, or something like that. And then they find this and, um, you know, whether there's other people on the work days that know about butterflies or plant identification or hydrology or whatever it might be, you just learn through observation, through doing too. And so some of the corners of the preserves where they're working aren't places where there are trails necessarily, um, just because we go where the, where the work is needed. And so you get to see, um, you know, we like people to stay on the trails obviously to not to not trample things unnecessarily, but it's an opportunity to go see these cool like corners of the, the preserve. Um, often requires wearing rubber boots or something like that because they're challenging to get through. Um, but yeah, there's a big benefit in that way. They get to see you get to see some cool spots. And um, just like for example, that uh, that project where the folks were coming back through the winter, um, like what is it? were they doing like yeah usually in the winter time it's uh chopping down buckthorn which is this uh species from europe and asia i don't know how it was introduced some of them were introduced through you know the nursery trade or botanical gardens or those sorts of things as like specimens some were some were used as you know fence rows to kind of contain cattle and livestock and things like that um, some of them were just total accidents so what however they got here um, they're here now, and there are some non-native species that aren't really harmful. They don't really do too much, and there are some that um, adversely affect the ecology, and so that's the difference between a non-native invasive or just a non-native species. So this particular one, buckthorn, is well-known, uh, especially in, in wetlands, and so that's one that uh, really fills in, shades out the uh, environment, it doesn't necessarily have the same food web. Uh, it's sort of taken out of its, of its food web that it evolved in. So it doesn't have the caterpillars and the aphids and the, and the fungal diseases and all these things that sort of regulate the, the growth. This is the, the working idea of a lot of invasive species. And so it sort of has this unfair advantage. And then a lot of native species can't compete with that. And so some of these places are in wetlands, and if they freeze over, they're a lot easier to walk through and work in. So a lot of the winter work is, they're out there with loppers, with hand saws, you know, making brush piles, um, that sort of thing, and uh, clearing out this, this habitat, basically, allowing sunlight to get to the ground to stimulate the native plant growth and things like that. And so, um, yeah, it's amazing, but there's actually a lot of work that can be done in the sort of dormant season, as we call it, when things aren't as green. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. 
and it's easy to get winter blues, right? Or you know, the days get <laughs> short. The, the um, there's a lot more uh, darkness. It's gray, but yeah, it gets you some fresh air. It still gets your your blood moving, and there's all sorts of you know health benefits and um, morale and mental health benefits that come from doing this kind of work too. When you are restoring a a space, are you thinking about the food webs and like the keystone species and like let's um, yeah. talk about it? Does that influence your work at all? If not, that's okay. We'll still talk about food webs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're looking for a lead does in for it food influence? webs here. Yeah. <laughs> I I definitely think it is. I think that. One thing, if you think about all the all the parts of a food web or all the parts of a you know ecosystem, uh, you've got the soil, you've got the fungi, you've got the or fungi, however you, however you like to say it. I think there's like five acceptable ways. You've got the plant community, you've got the herbivores, you know, which are insects, deer, rabbits, things like that that are eating the plants, and then of course you go you scale up to your predators or omnivores. You've got all these different elements, but uh, we, we have to build the basis of the, the foundation of the ecosystem first. And so usually that's the approach. Um, you know, you could address the hydrology in the soil. That's really like the structural foundation of a food web or of the ecology. So sometimes the hydrology screwed up because we found water to be an impediment, uh, either that was associated with malaria, things that we didn't have, you know, um, uh, vaccines or medicines for you know at that time and we were moving water off the landscape as quickly as possible so instead of natural meanders where there'd be pools and extensive wetlands and things like that we made straight lines and moved it off the landscape and so sometimes we have to try to address the hydrology uh, or if the soil is really damaged sometimes we need to stabilize it with plants but by and large, what we have control of sort of working with are the plants. And so we look at a space, and if it is sort of like um, if you're buying a house, and there might be some houses where they're super high quality, you're like, oh, this is move-in ready. It's clearly a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, ready-to-go house. You know, that may be an example of a healthy, intact habitat where it's very clear that it's a floodplain forest or a beach maple forest or a prairie fen. And you're like, okay, I can I can see what this is. I want to support this, this form of, of housing or habitat, whatever. You might look at a house and say, it's going to need a new paint job. It's probably going to need some new cedar siding. I'm from a fine neighborhood. <laughs> like Joe, something about historic houses. It's going to need some new cedar siding. We're probably going to have to fix the plumbing, but you know, it's got a good, it's got a good skeleton, it's got a good, you know, core, and uh, we think we can rehab it. That might be something that's, that's been altered, maybe there's uh, a lot of invasive species there, or maybe something's changed with the hydrology. And there are other times where it's like, this is a health hazard, it's not safe to be in, <laughs> we probably need to start over with this house, right? So there are some places where uh, like say something that's been farmed, the soil's been tilled over for years and years and years, you know, it gave value to the community in producing food or something like that. But if it's like post-agriculture, you know, the fungal network's not there, the, the organic material in the topsoil is not there, the 
plant community that was there before is not there. So sometimes things have changed so much that it's worth asking the question of what do we want to do with it. And there's sort of some subjectivity there as far as do we plant trees? Do we make it a prairie? Do we can we make it a wetland? You know. Yeah. So there are some of those decisions, and that's where the, the fun sort of creative knowledge uh, of ecology, or what we think we know about ecology, because um, we're learning all the time, comes in. But yeah, so building that, building that base, uh, basically. And yeah, sometimes there are keystone species where we know, like with oak trees, for example, these support a lot of life. And so um, we look at those as, as sort of keystone species and supporting a lot of life that sort of build it, if, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. You know, we can't put this diversity of insects and all these migratory birds, we can't pick them up and put them in the habitat. So you have to try to do your best to know what their needs are and, and pick the, the real sort of um, networkers of the habitat, um, if you will. So, so yeah, I think there are some important keystone species decisions as far as plants go. And sometimes they're already there, and it's just a matter of giving them some light, clearing some space for them, doing the things that they like um, to support them. So, yeah. yeah. And they'll show up, too. Like, you know, if the birds come, the seeds come. So, you know. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I like your house analogy, too, because, like, I live in an old house, and we have a couple walls that were, like, they just uh, took a couple of sheets of plywood and like yeah. made a wall there. Like this yeah. is not really structurally sound. And I'm yep. like, um, but it took us, you know, lots of years of living in the house to, um, to kind of recognize that, get used to like living in a house, you know, mm -hmm. owning a house and doing maintenance and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like, you know, as someone who is trying to, uh, incorporate native species in their in their yards and in their spaces um, and kind of looking at like do I plant woodland natives here do yeah. I plant you know prairie natives here uh, what kind of trees all of that kind of stuff I kind of feel like I'm learning how to live in a house again and like mm -hmm. trying to figure um, those kinds of things out yeah, and that's kind of a that's a cool part of the continuing that analogy too, because your first glance from the outside might be that it's fine, it doesn't need anything. But if you yeah, if you live in it, you get to know it a little more, you know how the house breathes, or you know how it feels in the winter versus the summertime or whatever, and there might be things that you see that the that could be fixed that you didn't see before. Or uh, on the other side of things, things might be in better shape than you thought. So, yeah, that process of figuring out what that house is going to need is kind of, you know, evaluating a natural area is sort of maybe equivalent to like a home inspection or like living in it for a little while and seeing like, I don't know, yeah, I guess that wall would look really good if it was a baby blue or seafoam green, I don't know, whatever. But like, you know, just spending some time in a place, you're going to see different species that you maybe didn't see the first walk through. I mean, um, these places I've been going to for years, and I s routinely see something new, you know, when I go out. So, yeah, there's something to be said for for uh, getting to know an area to, to figure out what it needs or what you think it needs. 
Yeah. <laughs> a little dose of humility, yeah. Kind of the nice thing about native plants and trees, uh, you know, they evolved here over millions of years. So basically you plant them and they grow. I mean, a lot depends on like sun requirements, but you know, they like it here, so. <laughs> yeah, they, they know how to do what they do best, basically, yeah. If you can sort of get them started and give them a little support, they just yeah. kind of do it for you. How does someone get involved with um, volunteering for you? Is it your website? Like, what, Yeah, the website's a great place to start. We have uh, a big email list, so we get a reminder when work days are coming out, so we're having one this Saturday. Um, we're in nine counties, so the one this Saturday is near the Marcellus area in Cass County uh, on April 22nd, which is Earth Day, of course. Um, there's a work day at Bow in the Clouds here in Kalamazoo, but they're posted on our website, so our website's a good clearinghouse. It's uh, our acronym, swmlc.org. There's a nature preserve map on there, so if you just want to go take a hike, go look at some birds, go take your dog for a walk, go for a walk with a friend or something, you can find the nature preserves there. We've got our workday events posted. Um, we have something called a social hike coming up, which has sort of no agenda other than just being in nature and enjoying the company of other people who, uh, who like to do the same. So that's posted on there. But yeah, I think the website's a great place to start. We have an active uh, Facebook and Instagram page. So things will be posted on there as well. But uh, yeah, the website, swmlc.org is kind of the, the best clearinghouse to find everything. Awesome. Um, any, uh, any last words? No. Um, but like, <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> you know, once a guest is on, they never come That's back. That's right. <laughs> any final thoughts, though, that you uh, just definitely want to... Uh, bestow on our audience before you go, you know? Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked about the scaling of, of conservation in nature. You know, does something really small matter? You kind of asked, and we're talking about these big blocks of habitat and migratory corridors. I would say if you're interested in conservation and the environment and you want to you wanna help out with your dollars or with your, your energy and your time, Think about this scale. Um, so you can work in your own space. You can volunteer at a community nature preserve or a park or something like that. There's things that we can't necessarily do on a large scale, but you can become a member. So we're a membership-based organization, or you can support other organizations that go on a statewide, you know, nationwide uh, scale. So all of those things are important. So I'd encourage people to kind of think about all levels, all aspects of what they do if they're interested in supporting the environment and conservation. I don't really have anything other than um, the Land Conservancy is just a, an amazing organization. I mean, from their communication people, you know, for the website and uh, Facebook pages and stuff to the stewardship people, uh, you know, it's just really a great group. They do a lot of great work too i mean like really good stuff yeah thanks joe <laughs> and thanks for being part of it helping out <laughs>